Hello and welcome back to another episode of Letters from a Contrarian. With me this week I have Dr. Ryan Alford, a law professor at Lakehead University. I just wanted to make a couple of points before we get into the index of things we talked about. One is that Dr. Alfred spoke to me from Thunder Bay, so you will hear a bit of thunder in the background. Point number two is that we did not go through each of the rights individually. Um, if you'd like to know more about the rights, please buy his fabulous book called Seven Absolute Rights. It's available on Amazon for around $30. The link is in description. Um, so buy the book. Um, but if you want to hear Dr. Alfred go through each of the seven rights, I'm thinking we could do that. Um, if five people either private message me on Twitter or respond to the Twitter thread um, asking him to come back onto the podcast um, to go through all seven of the rights, then I will happily invite him back. I think he would be down for that, but I will ask him. So I just need five people, and I would enjoy doing that too, so do it for me too. The next point is that I don't know who you are, you who are listening to my podcast right now. It would be really helpful if you reached out to me and criticized me for being too annoying, for saying too many ahs, or also for uh, telling me whether I am uh, simplifying things too much or if I am not simplifying things too much and, I, and if I need to provide more context. It's very disconcerting to speak with someone and not know uh, who the listeners are and what they will understand or what they won't understand. So it would be helpful if you critiqued me there. Now, for the index, which I noticed people are using, um, at least they used it for my episode with Lisa Bildi. For the first 20 minutes of this podcast, uh, I spoke with Dr. Alfred about changing people's minds, the neutrality principle, and how LaFontaine and Baldwin used that at Canada's founding in the 19th century. Uh, from the 25-minute mark, from the yeah, from the 25-minute mark to the 40-minute mark, we chatted about uh, whether Baldwin's rewarding of judges faithful to the Constitution and who did not allow for executive overreach, whether their rewarding of these judges was political interference or not. We also talked about how you know which documents are constitutional and which are not, and Dr. Alfred put forward a Canadian originalism, and he also talked about how judges in England are sorting through this issue. From the 40-minute mark to the hour mark, we chatted about instrumentalism, uh, the different selection pressures that judges have versus academics, why academia tends to be fertile ground for radicalism and criticism. Uh, we chatted about the radical change in legal education in the 1950s at the University of Toronto and also in Canada. And we talked about Bush v. Gore and how it is a logical consequence of instrumentalism. From the hour mark to the hour and a half mark, we talked about law students and the law society. We talked about how, uh, about what courses you should take if you're at law school and if you want to be an actual practicing lawyer rather than just a law professor. Uh, we talked about how to succeed despite fit or other barriers, like class barriers or race barriers. 
and we talked more generally about law societies and how they should not use coercion to regulate diversity. At the hour and a half mark, we talked about the seven absolute rights. I ran through them super quickly, and then I zoomed in on the absolute right to not be tortured by your government. I pushed back on that, and I questioned Dr. Alfred about it. At the hour and 45-minute mark, I asked Dr. Alfred about Jody Wilson-Raybould, who actually was perfectly situated to use um, another of the absolute rights, the right to speak in Parliament uh, related to parliamentary proceedings without being criminally sanctioned for it. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I sure did. And make sure to subscribe, to leave a comment, to please criticize me, to reach out and criticize me. Um, and, and yeah, enjoy my conversation with Dr. Ryan Alford. Dr. Brian Alfred, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure, Eugene. Happy to be here and to meet you virtually at the very least. <laughs> yes. So first and foremost, congratulations on the publication and the selling out of its first edition of your book, Seven Absolute Rights. You must be thrilled about that. <laughs> uh, from what I'm hearing about the readership, uh, I'm very, very pleased. The positive feedback is really what keeps me going. Good, good, good. Uh, okay. Uh, I just forgot to turn my recording thing on. Oh, dear. So we're good. We're good. Um, so my question number one is, what is the most unpopular opinion you've ever espoused? Mm, um, strangely enough, I think it would have to be that trying to regulate the speech and attitudes of lawyers to a particular end uh, may be counterproductive. I think that's the really uh, unpopular opinion. It's, I think because people could accept that there were constitutional limitations, they could accept my arguments for the statutory framework. I think what encountered the most opposition was the idea that it's counterproductive, that when you try to do this, you're unlikely to have the desired result. Okay, and so in that case, how, do you, how would you suggest going about changing the, the values and, and ends of, of lawyers without it hitting you back. Right. So uh, I think that it's really, I, I always tell this to people, it's very frustrating to have to engage in a dialogue with people whose ideas you really despise. Um, so uh, the example, I mean, it's a phenomenal example. There's a man in the United States um, who went and spoke to members of the Ku Klux Klan, right? And he actually convinced dozens, scores of those people to abandon their racist worldview. And you look at what he had to do to do it, it required a tremendous amount of work. And people say, well, I shouldn't have to do that, right? These views are abhorrent. I shouldn't have to engage in dialogue with these people. Well, what are you trying to achieve? Because what we've seen, and I'm writing about this right now, particularly with respect to populism, if you tell people that their opinion is not worthy of respect, it tends to just harden their opinion, right? And then they, they have this kind of victimology about how they're always being suppressed. And it only, it, it contributes to what's called epistemic closure. It'll just make their opinion less amenable to, to reputation. Whereas when you ask them what their opinion is and ask them to back up their opinion and then engage in an open-ended debate about whether or not their premises are correct, 
that's the really the only way you can change a mind. And isn't that what we're trying to do? Um, because the alternative, right, is essentially to drive people out because they have unacceptable opinions. And I've heard that um, in a number of legal debates. I heard people say at the University of Victoria when I taught there that if people weren't willing to um, to join the side that said that Trinity Western shouldn't have a law school, that they shouldn't be in the legal profession, right? And, and historians have a really important role to play in that debate. I remember another historian on that faculty talked about how we had treated Jehovah's Witness lawyers in the 1950s and the 1960s uh, and how it went back to Chinese Canadian lawyers around the turn of the 20th century. That this is an ongoing debate, right? It's, once you have that premise established that, well, there's just some people whose views are too abhorrent to allow them into professions or to say their opinion, it's, it never ends where you think it's going to end. It always ends up in a very different place. And you, you were an opponent. You weren't, in, you weren't a fan of the stops uh, of the statement of principles. Were you able to change anyone's mind through reason and dialogue? I think so. I, I, what I would hear at convocation was, okay, we understand why you oppose it. Right? I, get that, I get that a lot. Okay, I may have had the wrong idea about what your views were. So I think I did. The problem was, the next hurdle was, but nobody else will understand the substance. The public won't understand the substance of your opposition. They'll just think it's based on other things. And I always thought to myself, well, look, you can understand why my views aren't what's being attributed to me. Well, why would you think that the members of the public can't? And then furthermore, why wouldn't you help me to try to explain myself to the public? Uh, so, I mean, I, I, um, my principal intervention on the floor of convocation was to say, look, the reason why we know this is unconstitutional is because when indigenous candidates for licensing, people who wanted to be called to the bar in Ontario, said, don't make us do the oath of allegiance to the queen, because that's contrary to our values and it's for speech, it's compelled speech. We got a legal opinion from two lawyers, one was Donald Brown and the other was Ian Binney, who then became a Supreme Court justice. And Ian Binney said, no, that's not constitutional. You can't do that, right? And I said, well, if you think that Ian Binney is wrong, well, today, me, tomorrow, you. They'll be telling indigenous licensing candidates that it would be constitutional to make them take the oath of allegiance to the queen. And you might say, oh, well, that's not the way the political winds are blowing, right? Well, is that what you want your constitutional rights to rely upon, just what's popular today? And right. that was, I think that changed a lot of opinions. But then I had that next thing, which was, yes, well, I don't think people can really understand. I want to give credit to people in the public that they can understand the value of neutral principles that protect everyone, right? That, that, that idea remains intuitive to people. It's, oh, right. That may be protecting somebody who we don't particularly like, but it's also protecting me. Right? It's also protecting everyone else. So that really is something people get their head around. So, uh, that's actually the other question that I was going to ask you now is like an argument against for free speech or when you are constructing legislation, a good rule of thumb to have is would you be willing to allow your opponents to use this exact same law because eventually they're going to use it against you. Someone power hungry is going to come up and use it against you, so on and so forth. But my, my, my concern with this principle is that that idea doesn't work if this group of people doesn't come to power. Um, you know, like the power hungry people, if it's just tolerant you, um, who's careful and considerate against an intolerant group of people, it's not going to work. And, 
And um, so, so related to that, I wanted to ask you about two things, two situations in your book. One was mm-hmm. in Carta, where instead of, so what was happening, if I'm correct, is the king was asking barons for a bunch of, the barons for a bunch of money. They were being killed extrajudicially. And so instead of deposing the king, they decided to, um, to force him over and over and over again to sign up for this charter of rights over and over and over again, which puzzles me because you would expect them to depose them. That would be the, the bad guy getting to use your power thing. And then the same thing happens again 800, 700 years later in, in Canada when we have the Baldwin-Lafontaine government. They come into power, they oust the Tories who were oppressive and oligarchical, and then there is a Tory mob coming after them, trying to kill them. Um, but they still do not go down the path of using even legitimate emergency powers. They don't become that, that monster that uh, they are trying to prevent access power. Why do you think that is? So let me go back to the, something you said before the question. I'll, I'll, I'll loop that in. So the book that I wrote in 2017, which was called Permanent State of Emergency, um, I, I, I waited and I asked my publisher, I said, can I have until election day 2016 to write the afterword? Right? I said, I want to write the afterword on that day and I'll send it to you that day. So I was pressing up against some deadlines, but I said, give me that day. And I stayed up until 3 a.m. I don't know if you will remember, but the election wasn't called. Hillary Clinton didn't concede that evening. She only conceded the following morning. Um, the beginning of that night, the New York Times had a, um, like a clock or like a, a compass on its website. And it said the probability of Trump winning the election is 1%. And then it kept steadily moving all night long, right? And regardless of what you think about Donald Trump, um, I would say, in, if you take all of the safeguards off of the machine, and that's the, the analogy that I use, imagine this incredibly destructive bulldozer, and you take off every safety feature, and then somebody that you never expected jumps on it, right? You might think to yourself, oh, oh but who do you have to blame if you take off all the safeguards, right? And you think, it's, it, oh, certainly not. He'll never be it, it's beyond the realm of possibility. And let's remember, by the way, that the Democratic National Committee conspired to make Donald Trump the Republican candidate, right? They did their best to make sure that he would be the candidate of the Republicans because they thought that he was completely unelectable. They were frightened of Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, um, and Ted Cruz. And so they said, let's push Trump. And then, well, turns out that he had more appeal than those people. It's inherently unpredictable. But just with respect to Magna Carta, so one of the most important myths um, that persisted through um, English history, because it's connected with Robin Hood, by the way, is the idea of good King Richard and bad King John, right? That Richard was, the Richard the Lionheart was, was he, he felt for his people, and John was this evil schemer, right, essentially. Well, no, not really. I mean, for, for the most part, what distinguishes them, and of course, you can, you can complicate this, but what, compl- what, what distinguishes them for the most part is that Richard was successful in his wars in France and John was unsuccessful, right? So then he had to impose more and more doubling down on this taxation without parliament, right? Um, because he kept losing battles. And that's also because the French king was smarter uh, than they learned their lessons fighting with Richard, right? Um, so 
it wasn't really about the personality of these two people. And that's what the barons understood. They said, well, who are we going to have next, right? This child king, Henry II, right? And who's going to control him? We don't know, right? And Henry II, over the course of a very, very long reign, you know, he was sort of good at times and then bad at times, good at times and bad at times. And they were very politically clear-headed. They understood that what they needed was a way to, 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 to limit that power, to say that, well, no matter if you're good or if you're bad, you won't be able, because in some ways, a good king is more dangerous to them. A popular king, a king who has the support of the entire uh, populace behind him, right, can do these emergency measures that people won't complain. It just seems like it's um, you know, natural. Right. Um, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis about how the really dangerous totalitarians are the people who have our own best interests at heart, because they'll never stop. A robber baron might flee, right? But somebody who's thinking about your best interest is going to remain awake day and night, thinking about how they're going to control you for your own benefit, right? right. So they really were clear on that notion. And they knew that as long as there were no restraints, that some circumstance would conspire where, you know, to, to make that uh, taxation work, to crush all resistance, they'd be back in a situation involving extrajudicial killing, right? The way that, um, uh, the way that uh, John killed uh, Arthur of Brittany, for instance. So what they, I mean, they just went to such incredible measures. I love the story about how they had uh, anathema declared. They made Henry II stand in a church with candles in his hand, and they essentially had priests say that if you break Magna Carta, your soul will be immediately condemned into hell. Uh, so they did absolutely everything they could to try to make it stick. And then eventually it kind of gained that kind of prominence, right? That it became... We, we began to understand that there could be an entrenched constitutional right by the time that it became a statutory enactment in 1297, I would argue. Gotcha. Sorry, I can't remember the second question that you had oh, coming out of that. I, I wanted to ask you about the connection between um, oh, the yes. but, but, um, and then also the Canadian, the beginnings of responsible government. Right. And I mean, it's interesting because there's an interesting saying, so Boris Yeltsin is credited with this. I don't know if he actually was the one who coined it. But he said, you can build a throne out of bayonets, but you can't sit on it for very long. So if at the time of the loyalist mob violence around the um, rebellion losses bill in 1849, I mean, it would have been a simple matter for um, uh, Baldwin Lafontaine and then Lord Elgin to just use the British regulars who were there in Montreal to fire them in a crowd, suppress the mob violence request more troops from Halifax and then, if necessary, from England. Lord Elgin would have had absolute carte blanche to do that. There's no question. The colonial office would have backed into the hill. But then, I mean, what, what you look at the brilliance of Lafontaine and Baldwin. They allowed their political opponents to discredit themselves effectively, permanently. Because what they, what they did is they exposed their claim to be the law and order party to be completely false. And their claim also be to be the loyalist party to be completely false because their next move when they couldn't convince Lord Elgin to, to put in a coup to suppress the government was to call for the annexation of Canada by the United States. It's mind blowing, right? They're the party of a queen and country. And then just to, to save their own political power. And it takes real political genius of the type of Baldwin and LaFontaine to say, give them all the rope they need and they will hang themselves. And we will come out of this looking like we are, and they were the only party left standing. I mean, that's what people need to remember is that um, when you have the, so don't forget, 
Um, Johnny MacDonald was not only the first Prime Minister of Canada, he was also the longest serving Prime Minister of the United Province of Canada. And he governed in a coalition, of course, because you needed the joint premiership between Canada East, which is now Quebec, and now Canada West, Ontario. He, he governed with uh, Auguste Norbert Morin. So he had to break with all of those Tories who had completely discredited themselves. And the smart Tories, like Alan McNabb and Johnny MacDonald, pursued that path of moderation. So they, they were just a little bit further to the right of the, uh, the party of uh, Baldwin and Lafontaine. So it was now a very narrow political spectrum. And the extremes, the one extreme, um, the um, radical reformers, um, so that would be um, principally um, uh, William Lyon Mackenzie, right, and Papineau in Quebec. And then the Tories had both been discredited. And uh, the, the, the key point I have to make for the interpretation of the Constitution is that that idea of the Constitution animated that political movement that I call a moderate reformism. And that was completely unchallenged for decades. I would say between 1849 and Confederation, I had no political rival. So it defined the way that we thought about the Constitution. And it was the last ideology standing because Baldwin and Lafontaine had the smarts to say, well, we're not going to stoop to their level. We're going to allow them to discredit themselves. Every storm passes, this too shall pass. And at the end of it, we will be seen as the people of principle, which they were. So and, you, and then their opponents were seen as completely unprincipled. And we're going through something, I think we're going through something a little bit similar to that today, where you have um, very radical individuals who are pushing for the overthrow of civilization. It's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but I'm not sure anymore. A couple of weeks ago, I thought we would have civil war. Um, so basically, the way that they got that to work was to let them make hypocrites of themselves uh, just and, and play the principal route. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that um, there's a broader point to make about how we view politics, I think. I mean, um, from the time of the French Revolution, maybe even before, there's a strain of thought, and some really clever people have talked about this. Sheldon Wolin talked about it. He called it political messianism. The idea that what we need to do is effectively bring heaven down to earth, right? And create a wonderful utopian society where all of the evils of the past are swept away. Um, and it's a beautiful dream. Unfortunately, it has an appalling track record in practice. So as a historian, I always like to tell people, you know, my absolute favorite article from The Onion ever is, it's a headline and it just says, Nation's historians politely request the public to ask about the historical record. And then when they have the quote, the historian says, well, you see, we have things that happen now, and sometimes they're similar to things that happened in the past. So if you look at how people handled that in the past, that can be useful for how you're trying to look about how we should handle it in the present. But that's apparently a radical notion now, right? And um, even depending even on... Sorry, even, even the revolutionary should be looking at the past. The book I was reading was, So You Say You Want a Revolution by Daniel Chabot. And he was saying how, you know, the Lenin and the other Russian revolutionaries, they had studied the French Revolution and they saw how the French Revolution was um, stopped, I guess, in its track by infighting and, and by invasion from other countries. So 
So like, even if you're a revolutionary, you should still study history for sure. Unfortunately, the, the lesson that Lenin drew for the most part was the importance of a, an incredible party discipline and the idea that, that, that the line of the party should be all determinative. And then when you had, when you had that applied to the citizenry of, of what became the Soviet Union, it was uh, it, far more dystopian than what you'd even seen in France, which is really saying something. I don't think that people have a clear idea about how dystopian France was during right. the, um, the, that, that, that period the uh, of, of the revolution. So. Right. Okay. Um, next question. So Baldwin's government, after Baldwin and Lafontaine came to power, uh, you know, there were, there were these uh, abuses of judicial power. The judges were not recognizing that these extrajudicial killings were in fact unconstitutional and illegal because of the Magna Carta. Um, and so when Baldwin and Lafontaine came to power, what they did was they put in to, they gave, they appointed judges who were faithful to constitutionalism, who actually would recognize that um, extrajudicial killings were in fact illegal. They, they rewarded Whig constitutionalists. But would you not say that that's political and doesn't this mean it's illegal interference and therefore doesn't that violate the act of settlement uh, i believe it's the act of settlement which um, tries to eliminate political interference in the judicial system well the, the, the critical question here is do we think it's possible to have a view of judges and their oath taking to uphold the law and the constitution to view that as other than political. And I think I can make the argument that you can. Um, so I've, I've worked, I worked with some phenomenal judges very early in my career. That was my first job out of law school was to work for a judge. Actually, it was Robert L. Carter who um, argued one third of Brown versus Board of Education at the Supreme Court of the United States alongside Spotswood Robinson and um, Thurgood Marshall. And he was also the lawyer at the NAACP that brought that case from district court through the Court of Appeal to the um, you know, to Supreme Court. So I worked for him and then I worked for um, Rosemary Pooler, um, both phenomenal justices. So I guess the question is, uh, when, when a judge is confronted with a question about whether or not um, a statute, for instance, is contrary to the Constitution, and that's harder to do when you're talking about unwritten constitutional principles, as I do in my book, can they ever approach that in a way which isn't political? And I think they can. I think you can make a case based on what's called natural law theory that, that that's, uh, that's possible, right? So if you take a look at judges in an earlier era, so you go back, for instance, to some of the judges that I talked about in the book, like um, Edward Cook. Um, and by the way, we only know, we only knew for the past 20 years that it's not pronounced Cook. Uh, so at Oxford, all my teachers say Cook, but I think older lawyers would say, hey, Coke, it would be confusing. Um, so he would have absolutely fought that when he was, so Dworkin, for instance, and other legal philosophers say, well, these are the hard cases, right? And, and, and in that situation, a judge has to rely upon their own internal values. I think someone like Cook would say, my values are the values of the law, right? That what I have done is I have internalized what the law is all about, the methodology of law and the approach to the underlying principles of life, having been steeped in it. So that when I make that decision, it's not actually my decision. And when someone says, well, that's just you exercising discretion, you can actually feel very confident that it's not, that you felt just as bound and dictated to produce this kind of a result in a hard case 
as you would in an easy case because you just you have this strong sense even on the level of the unconscious that this is what is required and so for instance and you can see this because you look at judges and so it's the example that you use of the justice appointed by Baldwin and LaFontaine is a very good one you look at how what their track record was so when they appointed let's say um, um, Philippe Panek to the uh, Court of King's Bench in, in um, Canada East it was previously Lower Canada when he, they're appointing somebody who in the middle of the Lower Canada Rebellion granted habeas corpus, right? And, and what, did, what happened after they did that? He was dismissed from office, right? And he knew that's what was going to happen. He knew that Governor Colborne was going to say, how dare you? But he felt compelled to do that. Right. And then when he went to the Privy Council and was reappointed, right, he had the better argument, I think, right? So when you're putting someone on the bench because you think they're faithful to the Constitution, um, sometimes you have the benefit of them doing things that are manifestly against their own interests, right, to uphold that vision of the law and the Constitution. And then the question that you also asked about the Act of Settlement and about whether or not that's sort of interference by the judiciary. Well, what I have to do in the book that follows up from this is I have to talk about how parliamentary sovereignty can be reconciled with this vision of constitutionalism. And I've already written the book. I wrote it when I was on sabbatical in Germany. So I feel very, I, had, I felt like I had to have it written before this book came out so that I could answer questions like this. But I do think I have a pretty good answer about that. And I think that the answer is that, um, the, the, the short answer would be, you have to remember that A.D. Dicey wrote about parliamentary sovereignty after Canada became uh, a dominion and not before. So the way that those two concepts is reconciled in Canada is not really the Dicean view, at least at the inception of our constitution, the DNA Act 1867. And what's the Dicean view, sorry? So essentially what Dicey would say is, well, whenever anyone passes a statute, whenever parliament passes a statute, parliament being sovereign can overrule any statute that exists. And so if a judge says, hey, you can't do that. Um, so let me give you an example. In um, 1942, um, a decision was made to intern the Japanese-Canadian population on the West Coast. And part of that bill um, was a regulation passed under Defense of Canada regulations pursuant to a delegation of authority under the War Measures Act. So they said, well, we could also send these British subjects, what we would now call Canadian citizens, we can send them to Japan at the conclusion of the war, forcefully repatriate them, repatriate, being a little bit dicey. Because with exclamation, they, with, with, with the quotation marks in the air. Yeah, yeah right. precisely. Because these, these people had never been to Japan, right? It's on the sheer basis of ethnicity. So um, they made their case that that was unconstitutional because of the Habeas Corpus Act 1679, because it also prohibits exile. Right. right. And only one justice of the Supreme Court agreed with them, and that was Ivan Rand, who was very notable for what you call the implied Bill of Rights theory. But it was eight to one, and then they lost in the Privy Council because both the majority of the Court of Canada and the Privy Council said, "Oh, we can amend away the constitutional protection in of, of, the, of even the most important constitutional documents like the Habeas Corpus Act with any ordinary statute or even regulation pursuant to statute." And um, that is the Dicean view, essentially, in action. It's that, well, that was an earlier statute. This is a later statute, right? So, and of course, that was, also the view, that was also the view of Lord North in the Declaratory Act. That's what set off the American Revolution, was that he said, we can just abolish your constitutional rights with a simple act of parliament. 
right? The Americans disagreed. And at that point in England, and you can see it in Blackstone, it's still an open question. It took another hundred years in Dicey and a really important case called Phillips and Eyre to say that, no, your constitutional rights only go so far as Parliament hasn't abolished them, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that view is a 19th century view. And for the most part, it wasn't a view of the people at Confederation. I mean, that's the point that I make in, in this book. So parliamentary supremacy is the idea that Parliament is not bound by itself. It can change uh, what yes. I said earlier. It can change itself in the future. And that means like even acts like the Habeas Corpus Act and, and the Act of Settlement, it can, it can change those too. But the issue is it goes against the Constitution. Um, if, if Parliament can just change and take away all of these rights that you have, then what's, what's, are they truly rights of yours? Okay. And of course, it, it's very ahistorical because be, let's be clear, the Magna Carta throughout the Middle Ages was not thought to be just a statute that Parliament could amend, right? Uh, because another thing we have to remember is that Magna Carta is actually older than Parliament, right? So, right. you know, I mean, the notion that, well, and, and then here's a question that, you know, people put to Dicey, right? Point to the statute that establishes parliamentary supremacy. There isn't one, right? It's a concept in jurisprudence that was developed by people in what's called analytic jurisprudence in the 19th century. If you would have said that to, to Cook, or would have said it to Matthew Hale, or you would have said it to any of those pre preeminent jurists of the early modern period, they would have laughed the notion that you could just use an ordinary statute to take away Magna Carta. And that changes um, in, in the 18th century a bit, and then it changes in the 19th century. So in that case, what makes a, a, an act of parliament become something constitutional? So yeah, um, so we have really good discussions of this now in English law. So in chapter two of my book, I talked a bit about Coburn. That, and, was, the, um, that was the one chapter I couldn't get through. It was too dense for me. <laughs> it is very dense. It's very, very dense. But, and so he, he comes up with kind of a first principles version of how you can tell whether or not something is, is now constitutional in, in status. Because, and, he, and there are arguments now in the United Kingdom very much like what we saw in 2014 in the Supreme Court reference and the Senate reference, that you know, there's, a, there's a test you can apply to see whether legislation has become constitutional. So he goes down that route, and if the Supreme Court of Canada was to further elaborate that, they would, they would use that, um, that, that rationale that comes from uh, Thoburn and the cases that follow. But I have a different argument. Because what I say with respect to Canada, is that, well, it's very simple. What would the people who wrote the BNA Act have thought the Constitution was? And for them, they have a very, very simple answer. They just would have said Blackstone says, right? Because Blackstone and the, you know, the commentary on the laws of England, it wasn't just a book. It wasn't just a book among many. It was the last of the constitutional books of authority, which to say, you know, when you cite Blackstone in an English court, it's completely irrefutable. Right. I mean, it, you know, it, it, there, there's a, a, a saying that some people uh, use about Cook. They say that Cook's mistakes are the common law. Right. They say, well, Cook, Cook made a mistake. You say, well, Cook's mistakes are the common law. Right. And with respect to Blackstone, you can say that Blackstone's mistakes, if any, are the constitutional law. It's just not a refutable proposition. And he says in a, in a, in a key segment of that book, the first volume of Commentary on the Laws of England, that this is what comprises 
the Constitution of the United Kingdom, and he goes through all those statutes, right? And okay. so what he's doing is he's relying upon earlier views of what had attained constitutional status. Um, but, I, and I can walk you through why that's the case, but for our purposes, at least in Canada, given that people like LaFontaine and Baldwin just would have held up Blackstone, and, and, then, and then what's binding on us is their intentions in 1867, at least if we have a somewhat originalist methodology to apply to um, the BNA Act. It's a very easy answer. So, but the issue with that is, so what you're saying is that something is, the const- is a constitutional statute if Blackstone says so, because he's drawing on these other thinkers like Cook. I'm never going to get that pronunciation right. Some people have that pronunciation too, yeah. Okay, Edward Koch, um, uh, who also says that this is the constitution. But that leaves in question what happens in the future. Um, what if yeah. we come up with some, I don't know, uh, con- like it becomes absolutely necessary for Twitter users, um, like the, the like if heads of states have Twitter accounts, um, they are not allowed to... Uh, declare war on Twitter. It's just, it's just, it has to become a constitutional document. How would Parliament go about making something constitutional? So we are so fortunate now. I mean, we have a, 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 an amazing constitution that's partially written and partially unwritten, um, and it has the strength of both. Um, so we are so fortunate that since 1982, we now have a fully uh, contained. Uh, procedure for amending the Constitution. Uh, hold on. Hold so, on. I, how would you make a uh, non-derogable con- uh, act of Constitution, be, be, a constitutional act? Because I'm, I'm guessing that the Charter allows for you to amend things. And if that's the case, then it's not really an absolute right. No, because the Constitution, this is an important point. Most people don't grasp this. But the amendment uh, uh, Section 4 of the Constitution Act 1982 doesn't just apply to the Charter. It applies to the entire Constitution. Uh-huh. So, yeah, so you could even do something outside of the Charter, right? And we make amendments outside of the framework of the Charter, create rights outside of the framework of the Charter. It's all possible um, given the uh, scope of Section 4 of the Constitution Act 1982, the amending formula, as we call it. Got you. And, but they, that wouldn't be able to get rid of or amend the habeas corpus act, for example? Or the Actually, I, I, unfortunately it would. Um, I, I would argue that you could use the uh, unilateral amendment formula to do that um, because there's just no way to get around the fact that we now have an exclusive procedure for that amendment. That would be a radical change to our constitutional tradition. But don't forget, you know, as, as, a, as a people, we do have the ability now to completely to completely do away with our constitutional. Our constitution lies in the hands of the people of Canada since right. '82, um, and hopefully we would never do something quite so stupid. But we do have the power to do it. Um, but if see, it's not Parliament's power to do, it's the people of Canada. You would need to have something like every province uh, agree, every, an act in every provincial legislature, an act in the Parliament of Canada with a supermajority. It's not just a matter of one um, legislative body doing it. Um, but, you know, it, 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 we have to have that because otherwise our constitution would remain kind of fixed permanently. At least that's the view of the people who created the, um, who were behind patriation. So maybe you should call a Barry Strayer and see if he'll come on the podcast. <laughs> maybe I will. We'll see. Sure. Um, okay. And 
Okay. Uh, before we move on, one last question on that. If it's the case that we are able to amend these seven absolute rights, doesn't that mean they're not absolute? Well, uh, they're as absolute as anything can be. Gotcha. I mean, uh, let, let me say I'm a Buddhist. Some people don't know that. Um, and um, there's a really interesting doctrine in Buddhism called impermanence, right? Um, that, that's just a fundamental part of the nature of reality. Everything is impermanent. And even the Dharma of the Buddha, like even what the Buddha said is impermanent. It will, it will conflict. There will be a time when not even the wisdom of the Buddha endures, right? And that's why we have like something like the future Buddha, Maitreya, the notion that there'll be somebody else who come along and says, hey, there were these great ideas that we had before. But unfortunately, we deal with this basic impermanence as a function of reality. All we can do is make things as hard to abolish as possible. But I mean, here, it's, it's, so essentially, remember, this is functionally identical to the notion that there'd be a revolution, right? I mean, the notion that the people of Canada would just essentially destroy the state you know, whether that's a constitutional revolution where they, the end product is to abolish the constitution in a way which still maintains continuity with the past, or they just create a complete rupture with the past, like they did in, in France, right? Like you, you can't, there's no way that you can, you can protect yourself against revolution, right? right? Okay, so. that makes sense. That makes sense then. Um, okay. So. My favorite chapter, as I told you before, was chapter seven, which I had no idea about until I got there. And then I couldn't stop until I finished reading it. And in chapter seven, you have this beautiful genealogy of instrumentalism, where you talk about how it's like Bacon versus Cook, um, and then Bacon teaches Hobbes, who teaches Austin, who teaches Bentham, who teaches Frank Felix Frankfurter, who teaches John Willis, who goes on to like establish this coup at the University of Toronto and start the law schools there, moving um, the teaching of lawyers from the profession itself to academia in the 1950s. Um, something that I have started to think is that moving legal education from the profession, from lawyers and judges to academics led to a more widespread belief in instrumentalism. And it has, in, in other words, it, it is the view that law should be a tool for social change inherent to it being taught as an academic subject? Because yes. that would explain a lot of the, um, the, the radical views that we're starting to see across campuses, the postmodern neo-Marxist views of using law as a tool. But uh, what's, your, what's your answer to that question? I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I would say just if you want to see a, a Chris Notes version of that, here's one way to think about it. Academics need to innovate to get tenure and to prosper in the academy, right? Like, I mean, imagine if essentially what I did as a law professor is I said, everything's fine. Just don't worry about it. It's all good, right? You know, I mean, lawyers have this under control. Judges are smart people. Like, this is very interesting, right? Um, most academics don't have a high, a, a good view of judges. I mean, they constantly criticize what judges do. And they, well, it's kind of a, more complicated than that, but frequently they essentially, what they broadcast is that they know better. That if only they were the ones who were deciding these cases at the Supreme Court of Canada, let's say, what have you, right? right? And it's like, well, if you actually work with judges, you get a sense of how smart they are. And in fact, they're so smart that they don't need to convince you of their intelligence, right? And that's, that's a really smart person. 
Um, the person who's always going on about how smart they are is probably not, right? right. I mean, anybody who mentions their IQ, that's a, good, that's a good gauge right there. So here's the problem. You have this profession in academia that's dedicated to innovation. Everybody has to, has to fight to make their name, you know, and establish what the flaws are in the existing model, right? It's very kind of, um, you know, um, Freud said it's all about the, the, the sacrifice of the father, right? That you, each generation has to slay, you know, the, the, the previous generation, right? right? And now law is the exact opposite. It's about the veneration and the maintenance of these traditions and a professional ideology that said we're the keepers of flame of all of these things, right? And so if you think about who's better suited to teaching, it's absolutely the profession. And I don't think anybody in the profession thinks otherwise. They would say that at best, people in law school kind of get exposed to the right ideas or what have you. But the notion that um, without any, like imagine that you had no exposure to the profession. Like imagine this some sort of experiment where the only kind of, oh boy, the only kind of education that we get, I'm in the middle of a thunderstorm here, um, oh, is, is academic. And they never got any professional training. What a nightmare that would be. Uh, it would be an absolute nightmare. And I can speak from experience here because I go into court on constitutional challenges and I become acutely aware of my own failures, right? Right. And, and I think that's why academics should do that because you realize that you're not adequately prepared to do this work, right? That it comes from mentoring within the profession. And the further that legal education goes away from practice, and unfortunately it's always remained tethered in certain ways by having adjuncts to a prominent practitioner teaching in upper year classes, all things of that nature, articling, things of that nature. But if it was completely untethered, um, there would be a rebellion in the profession. People would say, well, just to give you one indication, I'll tell you something that I don't normally say. But um, I remind a number you that this is a podcast. And it's yes. Okay, okay, good. But I'll, I'll, I'll kind of just um, blur the details a bit. But sure. um, a number of leading firms in the United States made the decision when I was in legal practice and I was on a hiring committee at a major international firm, they made the decision to no longer hire the graduates of Yale Law School. And Yale Law School was the number one rated law school in the United States. But I think that many people would say that no law is being taught at Yale. It's all just policy. It's completely woolly, right? And for the people in those firms, and these firms are not anti-intellectual firms, right? I mean, I worked on incredibly complex matters with the partners at my firm, right? But they've made that decision to no longer hire the graduates of Yale. What is going on with American legal education if that, that, that gets made, right? And uh, that's not a unique phenomenon. Um, and for instance, you, you have people like dissenters. So uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, Justice Thomas in the United States, he's always been very um, strident or um, vocal about the need to take his law clerks from a less prestigious university because he feels like they get a better grounding in law. And then when they become his clerks, of course his view is originalist and it's about you know, that detailed kind of appreciation of, uh, of common law and things like that, rather than this open blue sky thinking more typical of other justices. And he's hiring clerks from University of, of Nebraska and from uh, University of Illinois and not from Harvard and not from Yale. So we're seeing that those tensions become more evident now um and because that instrumentalism it really can't work i mean if you're a judge and you openly espouse that kind of instrumentalism 
how could you even how can you even be seen as taking your oath seriously? Um, never mind if you're a lawyer. Someone agrees with me. <laughs> That's He's right. Angry at what's going on. You're right. That's right. That's okay. When whenever you hear thunder, we'll we'll just pause and then continue when it stops. Go ahead. Don't worry. I'm, I'm in a concrete building. Uh, Okay. Uh, so, you know, I have no fear whatsoever. If, if the line falls, it'll be because um, the power was uh, struck, which happens quite a lot in Thunder Bay. Okay. It is, of course, the Bay of Thunder, or I might lose my wireless, but until then, I'm good to go. Okay. But tell me more about what your thoughts were about Chapter 7 and, and any questions you had following from that. Oh, um, yeah. Well, so I was thinking legal education, it's not a good idea. Wait, to just summarize what you just said to me. What you said was that um, the reason for why academia starts to move towards change and these ideas is because they have this inferiority complex um, compared to judges, and they also have uh, the need to innovate and to critique um, as a function of their promotion in academia. And this yeah. creates an environment where the best academics are selected on the basis of um, how much they're pushing away from tradition. And in this transition at U of T that I described in the book in 1949, so you, you have the, the key figures, um, Borel Askin being one of them, Borel Askin, Cesar Wright, and John Willis, saying a school that exists primarily to train lawyers, to make them good practitioners, is inferior, it's not deserving of a university. And you think, okay, you look back and you look at those practitioners at University of Toronto before, those academics. They were not third-rate minds. I, I defy people to read the dean whom they replaced, right, uh, WPM candidate, and to say that that's the work of an inferior scholar. It is clearly not. But the vision of that kind of scholar is that I want to teach lawyers what it really means to be a lawyer, right, rather than to introduce like the higher criticism of law, to make them cynical about law, to make them think that law is some kind of shell game, a la um, Jerome Frank, right, or other legal realists at the time, right? Um, they took their oath very seriously, right? And so when Borel Askin and Caesar Wright and John Willis come in, and by the way, John Willis is the worst of the three. He despised judges. Um, okay. And he, he thought that he was much smarter than all of them. Uh, we know that that's absolutely clear in his writing. Um, they disdained that kind of educational model, right? And then ask yourself, what's wrong with that educational model? Only if you think of the profession as inferior and intellectually stultified and um, all those things. But look back at the history of law and all these phenomenal legal scholars, right, and judges, and ask yourself, okay, if I put you up against Blackstone, or I put you up against Hale, I put you up against Cook, right? I'm sorry, you don't look all that good. I mean, you know, in terms of like, you know, this, your intellectual brilliance, right? right. And, then, and, and, and that's quite obvious because they keep painting themselves in these corners. That's the way that Morton Horowitz did, right? Where it's like, oh, we don't need the rule of law. It's all just hide-about nonsense. And then, whoopsie, turns out you do. And you have to pull this intellectual 180 that really is, um, unless you've just completely brainwashed your audience, um, it makes you think, well, goodness, why should I ever listen to anything you, that you ever say? When you feel the need to completely abandon everything you said previously, just because of changes in the political context, right? And that, and that 180 that you're referring to, that was the election of George Bush, right? 
where every, oh crap, you do need the rule of law because it turns out your enemies can come into power. So, I mean, and, 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 I mean one of the most shocking things I ever read, I talked about in my 2017 book, was the judgment, or they would call that the opinion, in Bush versus Gore. I mean, it is pure ends-oriented uh, reasoning. It's horrifying, right? It is incredibly demoralizing for any lawyer to do that. It, was, it affected the, the esteem of the Supreme Court of the United States for years following, right? I would argue until at least 2008. And so here's the thing. If you're this person who said, well, all law is like that, and why should it be otherwise, right? And then you see, you know, what, what you have wrought, right? It's like, this is, you know, as, as you sow, so shall you reap. And that was Bush versus Gore. What was, it, what, was know, the, what was in that decision? Well, the Supreme Court of the United States decided to stop counting the ballots for who was the, um, the winner of the election between George Bush and, uh, and, and, and Al Gore in Florida. So the Supreme Court of Florida, right, had ordered that the ballots be counted. And the Supreme Court of the United States overturned the Supreme Court of Florida. And they did so contrary to all of the principles we have some technical difficulties, um, obviously. Give me one second. There we go. Your audio. There we go. Oh, you know, you know uh, Zeus was so upset with Bush v. Gore. Oh, uh, yeah, a lot of people are. <laughs> Wait, no, my camera. And rightly so. Oh. I mean, you have to read it to believe it. You really do. But at the end of it, then the majority says, and this opinion shall have no precedential value. So basically what they said was, this is a one-off. And what that means is, if it came back to the court with different parties and different positions, that they wouldn't feel compelled to rule the same way. If they say this explicitly, it's wild. Right. And I mean, that's, so, that's what you get with pure instrumentalism, right? And I mean, when people finally see it, they're, they're not... They're not particularly thrilled with the result. I mean, everybody thinks that uh, it'll be them in the driver's seat when it comes to that sort of thing. But again, neutral principles, right? It, it's kind of a harder sell, especially in an age where there's a lot of political millenarianism, where you say, oh, it's possible to achieve heaven on earth. I mean, famously, uh, Justice Abella said, I'm tired of hearing so much about the rule of law. What I want to hear about is the rule of justice. And I, you know, something right. I mentioned, I think I mentioned my book, uh, she was at the Faculty of Law at University of Toronto while Wills was teaching uh, administrative law. So, but, you know, it's like you don't always necessarily get what you get. Um, and um, you were well, certainly what you expect. And sometimes the, the conservative uh, play, which is for neutral principles, for the right to everyone, it becomes, I think, um, more appealing once you've been on that losing side unexpectedly, I would argue. And, and in regards to that, there are two things I want to say. One is there's this Harper's letter that just came out oh, yeah. where a whole bunch of, of literary figures on the left are finally um, critiquing cancel culture. And the other thing is con common good constitutionalism, which has come out in The Atlantic by Adrian Vermeule, um, where now the conservatives are getting fed up because they are not, the judges, the originalists who they are electing to the bench are not actually um, voting for conservative things they're just being originalists <laughs> yeah and nothing more they're they're faithful to those neutral principles right which i think is, is pretty honest of them and that's an excellent example of how you really can trust judges to be faithful to their oath when they have this opportunity to inject these personal views 
in those really um, contentious cases. They didn't. And they really shocked a lot of people by, by the fact that they were as ethical as, as they were. Right. Based on what was said about Justice Kavanaugh, you expect him to sprout horns. But, you know. So, so uh, academics are selected on the basis of their innovation. How are judges selected then? Well, traditionally, uh, and this is still fairly um, accurate, they're seen as, by their peers as very um, technically gifted and also um, temperamentally suited to being judges. So um, I can only say this in the vaguest possible way, but I have been called as a reference. Um, and I, I, I still hear the kind of questions that are being asked. And to me, those questions are very salient. I mean, they're asking all the right questions about whether or not someone's suited to do that role. And the, the, the people who are serving as references, for the most part, are people who know someone for a very long time, having been their colleague at the bar. So, for instance, in Thunder Bay, hypothetically, if you were um, being considered for a judgeship and your references were people who've seen you, seen you in this very small legal community for the past 15, 20 years, 25 years, they would know exactly what you're about. And if I put myself up, and I wish I wouldn't, and I said, but I'm, I'm brilliant, right? I don't think that they would have a positive view of that. They wouldn't say to themselves, oh, right, yeah, no, that person's smarter than us, but therefore he should be a judge. They would say, are you steeped in this culture? Are you somebody who has internalized all of these neutral principles? Because right? some days you're on the winning side and some days you're on the losing side. And lawyers go through that continuously. Right? You have bad, bad beef, and you have to go and work with that person on the opposite of the file or as co-counsel in the future, and you have to take those losses. And you also know what kind of person, what kind of lawyer, goes back to his or her client and says, it was the judge. The judge is an idiot, and that's why we lost. Right? Which, which is something that no, no lawyer should ever say to a client, period. You can say that after three beers when they're a member of the legal profession. Right. And hopefully what they'll say is stop feeling sorry for yourself, you know, or whatever. Um, and you'll get that response. But you should never say it in any way, shape or form to a member of the public. Right. Or a client. Never mind a client. And so we know who says that kinds of thing. Right. From being in legal practice with people. And um, that just can't be tolerated. And so there's a fairly good selection mechanism, I would say, particularly for superior court justices. That, um, and, why, and why hasn't that been corrupted by... Um, these people, these lawyers going to law schools which teach instrumentalism. Why is it still the case? I think you just can't there? succeed at the bar if you're a pure instrumentalist. I mean, how are you okay. going to do this job, right? Because what you have to do is take seriously the idea of precedent, right? Stand up in court all day long and talk about precedent and about statutory interpretation and about uh, constitutional interpretation. If, if you stand up and make instrumentalist arguments, you know, as a matter of first principles, judge, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I often tell, like, if you talk about other law schools, I'm going to accept out my own, because, you know, I think that we're very different in certain ways. We teach lawyers in law school how to make arguments to the Supreme Court of Canada. But what we should be doing is teaching lawyers how to make arguments to provincial court judges, to superior court judges, to justices of the peace, to deputy justices, uh, de uh, the um, deputy judges of the, of the superior court sitting in small claims court. And that's where you're going to be. And if you start right. saying, I have a novel theory of how Section 15 of the Charter should be interpreted, well, <laughs> you're going to have a bad time, right? Right. So that winnows out all of the people 
who are firmly committed to instrumentalism, maybe some of them can end up in um, 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 advocacy organizations or um, doing other kinds of legal roles. But if you want to be somebody who argues day in and day out in the courts, you can't be somebody who is uncritical about instrumentalism, right? Um, and it just, it, the profession, thank goodness, it serves this function of socializing people relatively well and saying, look, no, it's just you can't, you can't yell at the judge and say he's a sexist pig if he doesn't accept your argument about how um, um, uh, um, Du Boyer should be interpreted, right? Like you have to actually have cases and principles and things like that. There's no cancel culture in the courtroom, right? Right. So how then, oh, I wrote an essay on Trinity Western University and one of the things that I pointed out in the judgment was I noticed that there was a cancel culture thing developing, but that, that's something for another conversation. Um, where would you recommend law students or prospective law students go if they want to learn um, to be steeped in like a traditional understanding of law as opposed to an instrumentalist understanding that is perhaps taught at the University of Toronto? So again, other than plugging my school, which I will, and I would say that one of the one of the things that's great about my school is the fact that we're 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 close to the small legal community, right? Like it's not my academic brilliance; it's just the fact that there's that close connection between the school and the legal community. But I'm gonna I'm, right. other than saying that, I'm gonna be contrarian, and I'll say you can go anywhere because your legal education is your responsibility, and what you have to do is to find the people. And I would point particularly to adjuncts, practitioners. Find a way to learn from them. Find a way to have clinical legal training that puts you into contact, into contact with the legal community. Um, I would say almost every law faculty has the opportunity for you to do that. Um, and then if you do that, rather than taking, so I'll, the, the law school here must remain unnamed. But I'll tell a story about that unnamed law school. That unnamed law school, um, I taught a course called restitution at that law school which is a really fantastic course for anybody who wants to be a commercial litigator. Like it's very What's practical. Restitution? So it's, this, it's, it's basically around the theory of unjust enrichment. Okay. So how you bring claims for unjust enrichment in addition to claims around contractual breach, let's say, and things like that. Like it's a different theory um, that links into different remedies, basically, for how you, gotcha. how you get your client made whole. So it's a really, really practical course. Um, and um, I taught that course at 8.30 in the morning on Mondays and Wednesdays, okay? And um, I was subject to the mandatory grading curve in that class because it wasn't a seminar. I was just, because it was a black letter law course. It was subject to a mandatory P curve. Now, that same school had a policy that if you took a seminar, and that seminar would be something like advanced law and blank, fill in the ism as the blank, right? Uh, if you took that advanced seminar, it was not subject to a grading curve which meant that some of the professors gave out all A's, or all A pluses, in fact, to everyone in the seminar, okay? Right. And so the students who chose to take my restitution seminar, when I told them on the first class, it's really tough, it's very practical, it's very useful, it's really tough, and also there's a mandatory grading curve, so given that it's tough and you're, you have tough competition, you know, you're not guaranteed a great grade, you know? I mean, um, that's just the way to cook trouble. But I had a large number of students who remained in that class, regardless of all of that, because they knew that, here's the thing, two, three years out of law school, nobody cares about your law school grade, period. And they 
took responsibility for learning something very practical at the excuse of, at the at the expense of gaming the system by taking these seminars where everybody gets an A, right? Everybody gets a trophy day uh, all the time in the seminar, right? And um, so if you take that responsibility and you say, what are the opportunities here? I don't think you can go too wrong, although I would say another, another big, big caveat is don't go to the state unless you absolutely know what you're doing. Um, I did, that's a very different proposition given the tuition rates and the, and the variability of American schools. But in Canada, I would say you really can't go wrong as long as you are a very self-motivated individual and you take that responsibility for your own education. Okay, a counter argument to that would be the issue of fit. Um, this idea that, you know, um, it's great that the legal profession is so closely connected to the university and to the education system, but what happens if you are from like a working class background or maybe you're racialized and you feel like um, you're just not gonna be able to uh, join that culture and be socialized because you haven't been a part of it and you don't know how to go forward with it as well. Um, so, so what would you say to a student like that? So just, who has that I, I would just start with my own personal experience. So I also taught in the United States and the school that I taught at had a, a mandatory 10% bailout cut. So what that meant was at the end of the first year, the bottom 10% of the performers were, were failed and they couldn't come back. So we made that cut, right? And I would say right. that most of my, well, no, I would say um, a substantial minority, let's say a third of my students were racialized and first-generation university students. So not just first-generation law students, but first-generation university students. Um, right. the, the, the interesting thing that, that I learned is that almost, it was almost never the case that they fell under the cut line because they were very motivated to succeed. And this is a, 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 um, a, a curriculum where you can't fake success. I mean, when I, double, I graded my double-blind exam, it was pretty clear who could do a legal analysis and who couldn't. And what I always tell people is that studying law is not like studying um, a subject matter discipline. It's learning a skill. It's like learning how to hit a baseball, right? And once you know how to do that, you know, if you can hit a baseball, you know, someone like Ichiro Suzuki comes to uh, America and they say, well, no, nobody from the J League is ever going to be a good hitter in MLB. And he just clowns them, right? But he has that skill. You can't deny he has that skill. He can do it, right? So by the end of the first year, when all the grades were coming in, those racialized students with no university experience who, from families where they were first generation, who had dedicated themselves diligently to their studies, were, were knocking out of the park. Right, and it was a huge confidence booster. And this profession has always been, for every racial group, it has always been the latter out of lower socioeconomic groups. You know, you look back and you say Irish people, right, Italian, right, whomever, right, they were Jews, right, Borlaskin couldn't get a job out of law school, right? Um, but you, you can't deny that they can do it. I mean, one of the firms that I worked at in New York City was the first, one of the first, what they call a white shoe firm or a um, you know, very genteel firm. It was the first to become uh, racially integrated. And at that time, that meant they allowed Jews, they allowed Irish, right? Called Cleary Gottlieb. Cleary was an Irishman. Gottlieb was a Jew and so on and so on, right? And very quickly, those firms ate the other firm's lunches. Because if you're racially exclusive, 
right? And you're keeping out people who are talented on the basis of that racial exclusion in a field where talent, skill, education make the difference, right? You are going to have your, your hat handed to you in short order. And that's a lesson in history. That's not conjecture, right? So I would say if you worry about fit, you know, you just say to yourself, well, you might, if you're going into an environment where people are really against you, and hope that's not the case, you're still going to be able to show that you can do it. And if they don't like the fact that you can do it, well, you know, screw them, right? But conversely, I would say that most people are highly invested in your success, right? I mean, I, I have very rarely seen a law professor who would say, I don't want my racialized students to succeed, or I don't want my um, first-generation students to succeed. What we really hate is people who come in there with that attitude of entitlement. And that's who I really right. despise. And I had, so if you have students coming in there who think, oh, I'm, I'm going to ace my way through this or whatever, they got very rude awakenings. And I had no compunction about failing them out because, you know, that's, that's, that's life, right? Um, so you have, if you have that confidence, and hopefully mentoring is part of that. If people who can tell you, look, no, it's about if you, do, if you can master this skill, right? It doesn't matter if, if you um, – and then eventually you run into other obstacles, right? I ran into these myself. You know, um, you know, which there's a reason why so in the United States, there was always a meal as part of a hiring interview. And that was to evaluate someone's table manners. Right. Mm. And that's just a proxy for social class. That's why they did it. And right. um, that's that's gross. Um, but, you know, um, you, you can work your way through that, too. And um, yeah, um, eventually, for the most part, people say, OK, well, is this somebody that we can bring in who's going to be somebody who can master all of this, this social stuff or what have you? Um, and, you know, and they want to for the most part. The big firms want to diversify and they don't want to include. Um, there's an incentive against it now. Um, it, 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 it is a little bit more difficult when you come from that background, but it's possible to, to, to do that. And there, you can always find people who do want to mentor you, That's at least in my experience. Um, and, you know, I would say, um, that, that is so key, to have people who are invested in your success. And it's, it's fairly easy to do that in law school. It's fairly easy to do in practice. And uh, you just have to work at it. So another thing you have to work at, like networking is not fun. Building up those networks is not fun for some people. Some people right. love it. But for the people who don't find it fun, it's just like, well, you got to do it. You know, it's like that's just all part of what we're doing here. Okay. Um Another thing that's starting to, it's so beautiful on this podcast. It's like the people are listening to the older people and we're starting to develop a canon. But um, one theme that is coming up on this podcast is it might be time for a divorce between absolutists who believe that the law should be um, a tool, like uh, we should be enforcing people to promote or acknowledge diversity, equity, inclusion. And then there are other people who are more liberal who don't think that this should be the case. Um, do you think that, so my question is, do you think that we can take back uh, the training of lawyers from academia and return it to the profession? That's question number one. And question number two um, is, do you think we'd be able to set up like one law society for each, uh, let's call it uh, legal opinion, if you're a SJW or if you're liberal? So, so question one. So look at the United States as a very interesting example. So there was a, this is interesting history. So at some point in the 1970s, the American Bar Association was sued by universities because the ABA wasn't letting these universities set up law faculties. 
um, because essentially what lawyers want to do is protect their own racket, right? Right. Like, I mean, they want to make sure that there is not so many people entering the profession because then they want to have as much competition. And believe me, that's what, that, that, that dynamic is present everywhere, right? Right. So Canada has far fewer law schools per capita than the United States. And the downside of that is that there's less choice, right? That in the United States, if you have a particular ideological or religious or whatever point of view, you can attend that university and then that law school, right? And then you go out into practice. And there's much, much more ideological diversity in the United States. And people get to make choices, too, about whether or not they want a nuts and bolts legal education or if they want to go to Yale and, you know, um, go to finishing school for professors, right? That's, but that, if that's kind of legal education you want, have at it, right? Um, right. And, you know, and buy that lottery ticket. I do not, I do not think it's a winning bet. Um, but, right. um, yeah, so they can do that. You have this choice, right? And so what we need to, to achieve that, I would argue, is... Um, something like an antitrust suit of the kind that was brought in the United States. That's a little bit more complicated to do in Canada. But, I mean, the, when, when, the, when the problem is, when we decided not to license Trinity Western, now people can say it's because of the covenant or whatever, but lurking in the background always is that's more law graduates. That dynamic is going to be present for any law school that was licensed, right? And, of course, one of the reasons why Lakehead was approved as a law school is that we had a proposal for a very small entering class and graduating class, right? Now, why is that the case? I mean, why, why couldn't, let's say, um, uh, let me think of a school without a, without a law faculty. Um, Carleton University in Ottawa. Sure, sure. Start up a law faculty and put through 400 graduates a year, like NYU, where I went to school, right? Why shouldn't they be allowed to do that, right? Well, you know, and, and why should the law study be able to say, we think that's a bad idea, right? Well, on what basis? It's anti-competitive for you to say that, right? If you're saying, oh, we don't want to have too many graduates or whatever. Um, so that's, a, that, that's a, a going to be a big way to sort of change that dynamic. And, you know, I wonder if the law, if the universities will tolerate this from the law society for long. Because, so for instance, SFU has wanted to have a law faculty for a really long time. And the law study of BC won't allow it. And the only reason why Thompson Rivers got it was because of their geographical position, right? And the idea that, that they're going to they're practice in Kamloops after they graduate, right? That the Kamloops Kelowna law market is going to absorb all the graduates of Thompson Rivers, which is frankly ridiculous, right? So anyways, yeah, the, the, the universities may be part of what pushes against that. And then with respect to the law societies, well, here's what I want to argue with people. If you don't like what the regulator is doing, because it's limited in what it can do as a regulator, because it's a governmental actor for the purposes of the charter, and also because it has to respect the statutory limits of its authority, right? So it can't, it can't bring you to Big Rock Candy Mountain as long as there's the charter and there's you know, the Law Society Act. If you don't like that, join the Voluntary Association. The OBA is very woke. So, you know, have at it. Go into the OBA and talk about how, here's how, how we want to promote every value. And you have no limits on that. They don't have any, they're not a governmental actor because of the charter, so they can be as coercive as they want with their own voluntary membership, right? So right. go to it. But when it comes to the regulator, you know, so rather than arguing for a divorce here, I think what I would do with respect to the regulators themselves is to say that, well, they've got to realize that they have an extreme, and this has been my refrain at the law site, they have an extremely limited authority. And what I'd really like to see 
is clearer legislation about the, those limits. That Section 4.1 of the Law Society Act should say this is what this is exclusively what law societies do. And and conversely, they don't have the power to do any of these other things. But why do you want a law society that has the power to do this, right? Who I, I, I'm going to mangle this quote. I can't remember who it is particularly. But a government strong enough to give you everything you want is a government strong enough to take away everything you have. And that's true of a law society as well. A law society that's strong enough to give you everything that you want with respect to you know, all of your initiatives and, and particular policy preferences, it would also be strong enough to drive you out of your own profession if the winds of, of change uh, blow through society. And, uh, and also people need to remember so once you know we talk about the Law Society Act, well, we want to amend it to allow everything. I mean, arguably, um, the provincial governments have the power to take, to basically to, to uh, disestablish law societies and to govern the legal profession directly from the legislature. And boy, you know, if you're worried about, I mean, you know, if you think that Doug Ford is uh, is uh, the devil, right? Um, well. He got elected again, contrary to everyone's um, predictions, right? So, right. careful what you wish for. But I would just say, my, my campaign, the law study, has been about back to basics. Let's just get back to what we should be doing, which is within Section 4.1 of the Law Society Act, and just concentrate on competence, concentrate on discipline, concentrate on protecting the public. And that's what we do. And then, and then the reason why the OPA exists, the reason why these voluntary um, organizations exist, is to promote those policy preferences. So, go at it. Right, but the, the argument against that would be that, you know, we need diversity in the bar and a competent bar is a bar that reflects the diversity of the population. And the best way to get diversity is to force people to uh, acknowledge existing obligations and to promote diversity, equity and inclusion. And so you might be saying, oh, yeah, go, go to your work, your woke OBA. But the issue with the OBA is that they don't have the same responsibilities to promote competence and they are also voluntary you know well the, the OBA could do just as much if not more naming and shaming in the law society <laughs> and I would say that that's the key driver right I mean are you asking because think about what it looks like otherwise the law society goes in there and mandates what particular and just the people have contemplated this exactly how many racialized groups should be present in each particular um, firm right that's wow, okay, um, think about how you're going to do that, right? And also think about the consequences of that. So you have to have a certain number of these groups, right? So, so a point that my friend Sam Goldstein makes all the time is that um, Jewish people are, are widely overrepresented within the legal profession. So do we now need to say at McCarthy, oh, sorry, you have too many Jewish partners, right? And because, you know, that, that the Jewish partner has to make way or a Latino partner, or Latina partner, or what have you, right? This is, this is not great. And, and the, the idea that you're going to achieve it in that way, right, that you're going to get that at the end of the day, well, I don't think so, right? I mean, how would, how would that affect the marketplace? I don't know. But I certainly know that there are people who are they're being dictated to in an increasingly coercive way by the law society. And the reason why the law study can do it is because they're a firm of over a certain size under the prevailing initiative. Those people will drop out and become sole practitioners and take their clients with them. Okay. And I mean, we, we've seen cycles of this, right? That there have been periods in which large law firms, which the, most of these advocates at EDI think about the whole ball game, right? 
Um, and I don't, I, I hold no grief for Bay Street. Like, I don't care what kind of coercion uh, puts on them. Like, I don't take it personally by any means. But there have been cycles in which they've consolidated and there have been cycles in which they've disintegrated, right? And how will people react to very, very coercive mandates being put onto firms? I don't know, and neither do you, neither does anyone. So we don't know how that's going to work. What we do know, I think, is that the voluntary measures do produce results. The more that you get people to see, I mean, my goodness. I mean, did, did the result of the New York bar, all of those white shoe firms in New York City, which now have very large proportions of African, of African Americans, of, of Latinos, of, and particularly of Jews, right? Um, they, so let's go back to, to Jews, right? They, they weren't forced by legislation to open their doors to Jewish lawyers. It was clear that indiscriminating that they were shooting themselves in the foot, right? And why would you do that? I think it's the same for everything. If, if, so if you're talking about a community which is being excluded from, the legal, from, from a segment of the legal profession, well, you're excluding your, yourself from obtaining a clientele. You're excluding yourself from um, um, operating in, in, a, in particular spheres where that group is prominent, right? I mean, that's just, it's, just, it's, it's against your interest to do so. So th what we've seen with respect to voluntary um, desegregation even when there's incredible racial animus, people forget how hated Jews were in, in America in the 1950s and how much, right. how much anti-Semitism was um, rampant everywhere, right? That um, the market played the role in doing that. And, 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 and that was huge. And if you rely upon the market, you probably, at least historically, you get a good result. And then when you start mandating things like um, a particular, a particular uh, percentages within firms and things of that nature. You need a massive coercive bureaucracy to back that up. And um, boy, um, who knows how that's going to play out. And then you have to answer those hard questions of, well, does that mean that there are too many Jews in the legal profession now? And I certainly don't want to have to answer that question, period. Um, and I don't think we should be playing that game, frankly. And then the, and people who say, okay, we need to do something now, if we that's radically different. Has it not been working? I mean, have we seen more segregation in the legal profession over the past 50 years when we use liberal universalist kind of methods and, and ideology? I don't think so. Is racism worse now than it was 40 years ago? And then if, if it's not, why would we abandon the techniques, the liberal universalist techniques and the voluntary techniques and the, all those techniques? Why would we abandon these things that aren't working? And reportedly it's because they're not, they're not working fast enough. I can hear that, right? But why do you think that the other techniques will work faster? What kind of track record are you pointing to to say that when you use incredibly coercive bureaucratic regulations, that people are like, oh, it's for my own benefit, so this is great. I'm, I'm totally into this, right? And, you know, oh, I'm sorry, um, you know, um, um, uh, Arthur Silverberg, you'll need to quit the partnership because, you know, it's like, oh, that's great. I was going to retire anyway, so, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't know. Maybe. But I don't think there's any data to base that off of. And all the good data that we have comes from um, the, the, kind of the liberal policies that have been shaping our legal profession for decades. And I think that in the profession now, this is what, what my last word on this, I guess, but I think that open bigotry in the legal profession is um, incredibly stupid. Like, I mean, and that was not the case 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, with respect to particular groups. You would have seen open bigotry, open misogyny, whatever, you know, and that is now completely unacceptable. 
and you would be stupid to do it, not because you're worried about a disciplinary complaint to the law society, because it would how affect your, your business, your collegial relationships, all of those things. And that got eliminated because of, you know, uh, liberal universalism uh, in the regulation and the market. So I, I, re I remain fairly optimistic. I don't understand why we need to hit the panic button and, um, and, and completely change the tactics that are completely unproven. It seems imprudent to me. Of course, historians will always say that. It's like, you know, uh, I, I think it's imprudent for us to sort of strike out anything with no precedent historically. Well, right. Okay. Um, so, so, sorry, one second. I also, I want to actually get to the meat of seven absolute rights. Yes. Um, I want to ask you about torture. But before we do that, I just want to ask you one last question. Um, the law, in your opinion, doesn't seem to be, isn't made to be a tool for social change. Um, it shouldn't be used as something instrumental. It shouldn't be used to create a good society. It should be used for um, continuing that fire, that, that continuity of common law. But how, I'll, I'll push back against that. I think you should learn how to change the law. You should learn how to, to, to make the law just. And, and you should have justice in a legal system. Um, what, what, what's your alternative if I think that there is an unjust uh, system going on or situation going on? How, how else am I supposed to change it other than through the law? Well, um, there's two sort of elements to that. Let me, let me sort of tackle the second first, so just directly away to the end. So actually, what you have to remember is that politics is downstream of culture and law is downstream of politics. Right. So you don't like what you see in society with respect to a social ill. Right. Um, and you say, well, I'm going to use law to address this. You're using in some ways the least powerful tool because it's the most coercive, but it's the least effective. Right. I mean, if, if you think that so civil rights is an excellent example. So in the United States, um, imagine if there hadn't been a cultural movement that said that racism is unacceptable at the same time that we put through the Civil Rights Act of 1964, right? I mean, right. It, without that cultural shift, nothing is possible. And so Judge Carter used to talk about this. There was a case called Brown II, which was really depressing. So the Supreme Court of the United States basically put the brakes on school desegregation by saying that it should proceed with all deliberate speed. And the reason why they put the brakes on it is because people were really, really upset about busing policy, right? The fact that, so for instance, their children were being sent on a very long bus ride to um, a school for the purpose of desegregating, right? Right. And so the, the law sort of said, okay, we're going to slow down on this or what have you. Um, so the, the political solution, which was to put students on buses and to ship them a long way, and you can defend that as policy but it was bound to run into resistance from parents because it's just, you don't want to have your child commuting an hour to school. And that was sometimes right. low, right? That you want something like a much bigger investment in school construction so that we can have desegregated schooling without, without that, right? But then they just said, we're not going to do that, so let's do this coercively, right? Let's, let's, let's mandate that people do this, right? And that's where you come into resistance, right? And this is people, for the most part, who were open to the idea that their children would be in desegregated schools or you know, racially more diverse schools, but they just didn't want their children to be um, 
to be subjected to that particular measure to achieve this, right? But instead, it's just like, oh, just keep getting the pry bar out with law, right? So achieving the cultural change is so important. Um, and how you do that is sometimes through law and sometimes um, it's counterproductive to use law to do that. So it's a very complex balance. And so the more general point that you're making, but what do you want to achieve law to, to, do you want law to help you to achieve justice? I would say yes, but I would say that the spirit of the law and the historical um, record tells us that incrementalism is the way to do it. That you don't want to use the law to get far ahead of culture. What you want to do is when people perceive the injustice, and, and this is a sort of a principle that judges always and lawyers always thought was key, is kind of use the, the least the least disruptive means, make the smallest possible change to achieve that progress forward and then let things move and then adjust it again, right? And then what you're doing is very, it's seen as very prudent and it allows the law to kind of adapt as a whole to that incremental change, right? And that's the common law. The common law has proceeded that way over a really long time. The problem is when you just say, well, this injustice is so terrible that we need to put through this measure, which is very radical and very um, discordant with the other law, um, you don't you think carefully about whether or not that's going to succeed, right? I mean, and the, the problem that I, I see now is that people don't think about success. They think about how they're going to be perceived as a champion of justice. Mm. And you know what? People need some humility, right? It's not about you. Right? I mean, Judge Carter, whom I worked for, uh, my first job at a law school, I mean, think about the years and years he worked at NAACP, right, achieving that change. It's just a hard, hard, hard work in the trenches. And instead you say, oh, no, I want uh, you know, my name on this. I want to be associated with all this or whatever. Or I want to be seen as somebody who is on the right side of history, right? If you really want long-term change, change that will last, you, you require remarkable humility. That's what the law demands of you, right? And unfortunately, um, that's, that's the quality in the short of supply, as I see it, is humility. Right, right. Okay, thank you for that. Now, we finally address your book, Seven Absolute Rights. I just want to read through the seven principles. Uh, first, no one can be executed, jailed, or fined without an opportunity to answer the charges against them. Second, the government has no extraordinary powers to do what it otherwise has no statutory power to perform, even if it claims that an emergency makes it necessary to override the Constitution or laws. Third, there can be no legal authority to torture, which can never be authorized by the government under any circumstances. You're very clear about that. Yes. Fourth, everyone who is detained by the government in any manner and in every place has the ability to obtain judicial review whether or not there is a valid legal basis for this detention, even during a public emergency. Fifth, the judiciary may not impose punishments or excessive bail without statutory authority. Sixth, no one can be criminally prosecuted for what they say in the course of proceedings that are necessary to the operations of parliament. Seventh, everyone who comes to court is entitled to an impartial judge who is protected from state influence. That's a, that's a solid list. Um, after you read the book, you, you, you get to see how all of those have been hard fought for yeah. and, and are valuable. I want to ask you about torture. Um, because I didn't understand your argument. I thought it seemed like you were question begging because, so, so this is on page 99 on my iPad. It says the, the act abolishing the star chamber was what um, 
implicitly uh, forbade torture, but more explicitly stopped the Privy Council from having the power of detention. Um, and I'm assuming the power of detention means like the ability to detain or arrest someone. Uh, but but I, I don't see why uh, Privy Council or Cabinet is just able to create a new um, act basically authorizing torture. Uh, so, and let's, let's be charitable. Let's say we have a case where we have Bertrand Zobris from Inferno. This guy is a brilliant genius. He's created a plague that will wipe out half of the population of Earth. Um, and he has confessed to it. So we know that he is guilty of it. He has put this plague inside a box and this box will blow up, um, spreading the plague around the world. And it's in a place around somewhere in the world. But he's not telling us, but we have him in our jails. We can just torture him to find out um, where this box is and we can save half of humanity. Um, even if it's the case that he tells us uh, the wrong the wrong information, we can just keep torturing him over and over again. And and um, he might send us on a goose chase for the first five opinions. Yeah, I accept the premise, yeah. Okay, sorry. Um, so, so, so why can we not use, why is Privy Council, or, sorry, why is Cabinet forbidden from, from creating a law saying we are authorized to use torture in this situation? So I'm on very, very firm ground historically here. So let me start there. The reason why I say that is because um, I did my master's thesis at Oxford on the Court of Star Chamber. And um, like, I mean, I, I've engaged in some really detailed work where one of the leading um, legal historians um, who teaches at uh, Yale was actually not quite right in what he said about this. And I, 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 this is really in my wheelhouse. So here's, here's the thing. So torture in the early modern ages was a very prominent feature of most legal systems. So in France, for instance, right, every country that had a legal system based on Roman law, torture was almost compulsory. Like most witnesses would have been tortured to, to secure their testimony. And it was supervised judicially in a very complicated manner. Like it was, it was down to a science. Like you can see the machines, you can see thumb screws, like this, this kind of thing that looks like two rulers where they would, they would tighten this instrument until people were in tremendous pain, right? Uh, and that was just like stage one of whatever they would do. So that was the case. Now, England developed very differently because of the common law system. So once trial by ordeal was abolished in England, we didn't have a Roman law to, to fall back upon. They could only fall back on, on common law and on canon law, right? So very quickly, we developed a trial-like procedure that didn't have any torture in it. So just the normal criminal trial process for hundreds of years in England, let's say from around the 12th century until the 16th century, didn't have any torture in it. But it retained within the Star Chamber procedure torture and also connected with the Privy Council torture in the Tower of London, right? And basically the reason why that was possible is because the Star Chamber was essentially a civil law system within the common law, with kind of like this alien transplant within the, the, the greater body of the common law. And that, by the way, is why jurists like Cook absolutely despised it. Because it and, and, but this is not new, because it's the problem is when you have a, a civil law system, which has a possibility of torture within the common law apparatus, the easiest way to criticize it, and this was being done as early as the, the 16th century, 
uh, the early 16th century, is saying, well, that's what the French people do. That's alien to us. That's what, that's what, that's what they do in France. That's where the, and don't forget, the whole discourse is France is this absolute monarchy. It's full of abuses. You know, they, they torture dissidents, all of this. And so it's kind of, you know, rickety because it's so alien to everything else in the common law, right? And also Tom Bingham got this wrong in one of his cases. Uh, because it's very, very hard to understand. We had this one case where uh, an assassin of someone very close to King James I was um, going to be put on trial and going to be tortured. And you had all the justices of England saying, nope, that's completely foreign to the common law. You can't do that. Completely out of the question. But that really wasn't the abolition of torture because what they were saying correctly is that torture has never been in the common law. Right? It's called Felton's case, by the way. So what the monarch did is they said, okay, I accept this. I'm just going to keep using Star Chamber and the warrants of the council board to commit people into the Tower of London, this is Henry VIII, et cetera, and then have them racked and, and otherwise tortured. So most commonly, they would hook up to a machine that would dislocate their legs and dislocate their arms, right? And then they would just keep on going, right? It's really horrific. Like if you see this, the, the signature of um, um, the members of the gunpowder plot, people who are going to blow up Parliament. So you see uh, Guy Fox, you see his signature on his confession, and it's, it's almost illegible because he's writing with an, with an arm where every ligament has been destroyed, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. um, so um, that was how we got torture done, right? And so when they abolished the, the, the jurisdiction of the Privy Council, that vestigial element of civil law practice was now gone, and it was established by Felton's case the torture was completely alien to the common law. So at that time, then there would have been the question of, well, why can't we just pass the statute and do this? Because at that time, we're talking about the 17th century, right? The idea that parliament could just do things that were contrary to what you would call the fundamental law of England is completely against the grain. It's like, well, that would be no law at all. That would, so Cook would have just struck it down the way he struck down um, the law in uh, Onslow's case. Right, or in um, Dr. Bonham's case, he would have said, well, this just isn't valid law. You can't, you can't do that, right? Because they have this idea based on natural law that these are the fundamental principles of the legal system, right? And then if you were to put in a statute that says, oh, well, we can do this, it just would have said, well, no, you can't. So then the question is, after we get to parliamentary sovereignty, right, can we do this? Well, then you have to accept the argument of my book that what we got in 1867 was what existed in 1867, so that fundamental law would have been frozen in place then. But then as to the utility of it, well, the, the easiest answer is basically Abraham Lincoln, right? So this is often misunderstood. So Lincoln suspended habeas corpus extra-constitutionally at the very beginning of the Civil War, right? And people say, well, that establishes that the president can just do it and then it's legal. No. Abraham Lincoln admitted that he had violated the law and the Constitution. So all you need in a situation which is that dire, right, is for someone to take that responsibility to do something illegal and unconstitutional, right? But then they have to be prepared to be tried, right? And if they, but here's the situation. If it really is as you say, I have no doubt that they would stand up and say, I deserve a presidential pardon for what I did, right? This is appropriate in these circumstances, right? Now. 
if we adopt the other methodology, which is to make it legal in advance, right, they're immunized, right, then they can use it regardless of whether or not they feel that they would be able to justify it after the fact. So if we ever have a ticking bomb scenario or what have you, you know, someone's just going to say, well, I'm going to do this. I don't care what the law is. And that, 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 by the way, is how it would work, right? And then um, we save our constitutional apparatus um, from a situation where it becomes this, well, I kind of I get away with saying that that's the case, right? As was very much the case uh, previously, right? That these people weren't really threats to the state. They were just um, somehow unpopular political dissidents. So, so... You weren't expecting that, so, were you? Uh, well, no, it, it's smart. I like the idea that um, you are basically allowed, not, you're not allowed to use torture, but under the common law, you have to take responsibility for it. And this idea that you have um, permission to do so in advance of it actually being used is a very bad idea. Right. I like that idea. Right. Because um, remember, in the real world, uh, people are always going to do things. I mean, like revolution is possible, right? Uh, all that we can do is to say that we have a method of holding you responsible for a constitutional infringement or for, or for breach of the law, right? Um, and that's the best that we can do. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not a millenarian perfectionist. I don't think that we can ever, we can ever prevent uh, uh, every possible form of abuse or what have you. But it's, it's what we've learned from history is it's very dangerous to create this general exception that then the state can rely upon and say, yeah, but this is an extra special prisoner. So... Don't worry about it. You know, just move along here. Nothing to see. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna rip his arms out of their socket. Right. Consider that so, to be good testimony. So, so the reason for why torture is unacceptable, or is 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 never prohib is 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 crap. I can't find it. The reason for why torture is not allowed and never allowed, absolutely, um, is because it is alien to common law, and the reason for that is because it's it's French and we're not French. <laughs> oh, is, is that also a but, big, big part of this? If you allow in torture generally, right, it turns out that it leads to um, really unreliable results. I mean, right. the, the English would have said, because we have this kind of adversarial procedure, rather than just admitting in the testimony of what someone, what, what someone wrote down while someone was being tortured, that was typical of France, right, that we actually have more reliable adjudication. Like, you know, we have a better sense that someone's actually guilty rather than to somebody who will say something to stop you from tightening the thumbscrews. Right. Okay. So, so, okay. That makes more sense. That makes more sense. And the reason, so cabinet also cannot, so hypothetically, if cabinet passes an act saying that they allow for torture um, in the future, it should be struck down by the courts yes. who are looking at common law. Yes. I would say that as Blackstone said, the act abolished in the Star Chamber 1640 is part of the Constitution of England. So therefore, it was then part of the Constitution of the United Kingdom in 1867. So therefore, we have a Constitution similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom, which contains an unwritten constitutional principle prohibiting the authorization of torture. Got you. Okay. Um, good. That was, that was the question I had about that. Um, the other absolute right is 
the, the sixth one, no one can be criminally prosecuted for what they say in the course of proceedings that are necessary to the operations of parliament. This became relevant a year ago when Jody Wilson-Raybould, then the yeah. general minister of justice, um, had to, what was the situation exactly? She decided to not allow SNC-Levelin to, uh, to get an exemption from this fine uh, because... Well, she exposed, she exposed the political interference into her discretion right. as attorney general as to whether or not a non-prosecution agreement would be um, acceptable um, for SNC right. Lavalin. And she decided to not use her parliamentary privilege in the SNC Lavalin case. And I just saw a video yesterday of the former chief law clerk of parliament. He's in his 70s or 80s now, and he was saying that there's absolutely nothing that can touch uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould if she decided to speak up in Parliament yes. um, to do this. And yet she did not actually go ahead and use her privilege. Uh, what argument would you use to change her mind? Or what reasons do you think she had for, for not using this privilege? I would say that I, 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 I'm curious now if I asked her, if I said to her, if you would have been able to predict the other remarkable ethical lapses and rampant corruption of the government that came to light subsequently, um, would you have decided differently last year? And perhaps she would have. I think that maybe if she thought at the time that she had said enough and that enough about the scenario was known, there was going to be a report from the ethics commissioner, surely that would do serious political damage to the liberal government that didn't. Um, and they, they certainly didn't learn their lesson when you now have the ethics commissioner now having to look not merely at the prime minister, but at the minister of finance and other people for personal corruption, for having been in a personal conflict of interest with respect to the awarding of a $900 million contract. Um, and maybe someone will use parliamentary privilege to talk about that now, because it seems like that's what's necessary to stand up and to reveal with the full shield of parliamentary privilege, exactly how bad things are. And um, that certainly was important in 2015, I would argue, with respect to the Afghan detainee scandal. Okay. I, okay. So, so you think that the reason for why, one possible reason for why she didn't use it was because um, she, she thought that what she had already done would have done damage when in fact it wasn't enough. But moving forward, um, perhaps she would go ahead and use that. Do you, I, I, I thought that there was a reluctance to use it because it wasn't tested yet. Oh, no. No, no, I don't, that, I don't that, think so. That. No, uh, okay. I think that there should be unfairly firm ground there. And okay. um, I, I would have loved to have seen it too. I would have, I would have gone to the front row of whatever hearing she was testifying in. Right. And I mean, oh, we only see retrospectively what could have been prevented had that been the case. True, true. I saw, I don't know if you know who Emmett McFarlane is, but yes, with respect to the Wee, the Wee scandal, he wrote one of the funniest tweets I've ever seen in my life, which was, um, I, I, I'm not going to do it justice when I paraphrase it, but he said um, something like, uh, gee, I wonder how Jody Wilson-Raybould was responsible for this one, too. I don't get it. Sorry. Why? So it was, it was okay. a wee scandal. Like they're going to find a way to pin oh, it on her. Oh, got you. Got you. Got you. <laughs> right. No, no. Okay. That makes sense. It, it I, Ben Woodfinden, I think he oh. also wrote something funny, which was, um, they, they're, 
they're not learning what Trudeau was born with such a big silver spoon in his mouth that he no longer has to feel responsible for these ethical dilemmas anymore. It, it, he just does that, and that's fine. Well, he owes it. So. He, hold, he holds his position in Parliament and he's Prime Minister precisely because of his family connections and, and influence peddling. So, I guess you wouldn't right. see what's wrong with that. I got to tell you, before I get my foot in my mouth any further, I have to jump off on a conference call in about ten minutes or a little bit before that. So, if it's sure. like a final I, phase I, or what have you, I have reached. I've asked you all of my two pages of Excellent. questions. But, but was there anything that you wanted to say or, or talk about before? I would just say that for the most part, um, what I'm hoping that people get out of my book is a sense of the importance of history. And so in a certain sense, it's a Trojan horse. It makes this a particular argument with the Canadian Constitution. But what's hiding in the Trojan horse is this notion that you can never really understand things adequately if you don't understand their historical genesis. And I, I noted in Chapter 7, the chapter that you liked very much, that Maybe 40 years ago, every graduate of Acadian Law School would have had two courses, not just in legal history, but in constitutional history. And that when you look at uh, the, the people who've done a great job on our Supreme Court of interpreting our Constitution, like Chief Justice Lemaire, to whom the book is dedicated in part, and um, um, actually Chief Justice McLaughlin in the New Brunswick Broadcasting case, with respect to parliamentary privilege, it's because they had that background. And, and it's so easy to lose that link all it takes is one generation that no longer has that connection to it. And then you have to find a way to reverse engineer everything. You have to find a way to, to, to meticulously build up a historical understanding. So for everybody in your age cohort, if for no other reason, just to get a sense of the history that undergirds our constitution and why it's meaningful and why it's worth learning about, please do yourself a favor and uh, pick up this book at the low, low price, and it is, compared to most academic books, the low, low price of $35 Canadian. And, uh, and uh, see if it was worth it or not. If it's not, a uh, personal guarantee of a refund. Let's do that. <laughs> okay. And, and when can readers expect your next book on parliament, parliamentary privilege? Oh, the, the, the millstones of academic publishing grind exceedingly slowly. So probably two years from now. Two years from now. Okay. Dr. Alfred, thank you for coming on to Letters from a Contrarian. My pleasure. Anytime. <laughs>